off. Yes. For Allie to go out west. I went, went out yonder. A, I went on a huge adventure. <laughs> if you followed any of the Her Story on the Road posts, I put up some things about women's history while I was out there. Yes. Um, but it's always weird. Mm-hmm. When we spend like an entire week apart, I kind of feel like we're Ron and Hermione. How yeah. they like after the events of Goblet of Fire, they only spent what, like 10 days apart in the whole series Mm -hmm. until he up and left the camp. Ridiculous. Idiot. (laughs) But I'm always like, man, it's been a really long time since I've seen Katie. I know. (laughs) But you don't actually live with me. So I don't know what to do about that. But I was at your house a lot while you were gone. Yeah, I know. Kitty and taking care of the plants. That was so nice of you. (laughs) It was funny because the first day I came, you have like two flower pots outside. And I was like, oh, those are already gone. Oh, they've been gone. (laughs) Okay, good. I was like, oh, no, I didn't come soon enough. No, 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 no. Those are already dead. Um, well, we're not here to talk about flower flowers, though. <laughs> Maybe not yet, but <laughs> we're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. No, not at no. all. <laughs> we are professional drinkers. We Google. We write about things. We read about things. Mm-hmm. But we certainly are not historians. No, no. Uh, we make a lot of mistakes. Uh, and if you notice any of those mistakes, just, you know, shoot us a quick email. Send us a DM. Let us know. We are always uh, so no. happy to hear when we mess up. And then we like to blame it on Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> Because it's usually their fault. Yeah. I'm going to be messing up a lot tonight, so it'll be oh, great. that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so we are on our alphabet season. We are more than halfway through the alphabet. Yes. We are on Q and R tonight, mm-hmm. so that should be a lot of fun. Um, but you're busy. Oh. You're busy changing <laughs> your flights. Yes. Because you realized it was taking off at a time you didn't want to take off, and it is a hassle. Yep. To get online and change your flights. Yep. So you're online and you can't break your focus for even a second, even to go to a separate website, Google image to look up what these women look like. <laughs> so we are going to describe them for you. So have a picture in your head while we're telling this story. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing the queen <laughs> from the chessboard game <laughs> she is traditionally an all white or all black playing piece today mostly made in plastic but they've been made in ivory wood metal or stone such as granite in the same way the colors can change as long as you have one really dark color and one really light color mm-hmm. more than 500 different patterns of chess pieces have been recorded over the years but in general the queen is the second tallest piece with the king being the tallest the third tallest seems to go back and forth between the rook and the bishop with mm-hmm. the knight thrown in there somewhere she has a cylindrical body with an intricate like baluster style design around her base at the top, she typically has some sort of crown with a terraced edge and a dome in the middle with a small sphere in the center. Mm. And that is what the queen looks like. I have no idea how this is going to go, and I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a fun story. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this week, I, for R, am doing Rachel Carson. 
Rachel is a petite woman with pale skin, a round face, and she has very small features. She has kind of small, wide-set eyes and a very thin mouth with tiny teeth, which make her makes her smile look very cute. She had dark, curly hair, which she kept short, and she often wore a rain bonnet over it. Uh, even though she was a prominent scientist, she liked to be seen in regular clothes because most of her work consisted of her being outside in nature. Uh, and in some of the best photos of her, she is with her pants hiked up while she is bending over in the Chesapeake Bay studying its marine life. <laughs> A Maryland girl or Virginia? Yes. No, she lived in Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay. Good. Born in Pennsylvania. Okay, fine. Lived a lot in Silver Spring. So yes, this is a very locally based story. Yay, so I'm so that's fun. <laughs> okay. Are you ready to know what you're drinking? Yes. Okay. So this is called Right Hand Woman, mm. and it is a champagne and Guinness cocktail. Interesting. So what you do is you take a champagne flute and you put either powdered sugar or like coconut flakes, mm-hmm. shaving flakes around the edge. doesn't matter as long as there's something white around the rim of the glass. Mm-hmm. And then you fill the glass halfway up with clear champagne or, or sparkling wine of some sort. And then you top it by floating Guinness on top of the champagne. Exciting. So, cheers. Cheers. Hmm. That's interesting. It's like a very velvety smooth mm-hmm. flavor. Yeah. I don't even know how to describe it because you're kind of getting both at the same time. And then this like sugar from the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a weird taste, but I, I think, I think, um, this this is based off of a cocktail called mm. the Black Velvet. Mm. I do think it could do with a kick from some sort of liquor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking like a cherry liqueur or something. Like right. That to would top be it good. off. That would I be actually really, really like it though. Yeah. It's very smooth because I feel like the champagne kind of lifts the heavy Guinness yeah. up. And yeah, I actually I really it's like really it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So are you ready to tell me what you know about? The queen on the chessboard. Okay. So I've never been a big fan of chess. I liked the show The Queen's Gambit. I wish I knew more about chess. <laughs> um, but it's annoying to me because you have to think so far ahead. And I'm not a person who's good at strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that the queen, that's like the most important piece, I think. Mm-hmm. And right, because I... Is that how you win? You get the queen or is you get the king? And that's because you it's win checkmate. by killing the king. You win by killing the king. Or trapping him. Okay. Because that's checkmate. Uh-huh. But the queen can, I think, go like anywhere. And that's why she's so important. Um, that's all I know. <laughs> oh, this is going to be so fun. So this isn't like a super long story or a super in-depth story. I just think it's a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. And this is one that we could probably do with a deck of cards too eventually. Like, Oh, yeah. Because the different, as far as I know, the different queens on the hearts, diamonds, spades, um, and clubs are modeled after different types of queens. Yeah. I... Casey and I have uh, accidentally started collecting playing card sets. Oh, <laughs> fun. Um, and one of my favorite ones is like this kind of modern, but like also like tarot cardy, but also art deco-y like playing card set. And the queens are so beautiful. Like they're always my favorite ones to look at because oh, they're so fucking cool. Yeah. 
They are. So that's something we could do in the future. But this yeah. is not the queen we're focusing on no. now. Right now we're <laughs> focusing on chess. So here's some of my sources. I read an article called The Queen's Surprising History. I read sections of this really famous book called Birth of the Chess Queen, which was a history by Marilyn Yalm, um, Yalom. And then I also read How a Royal Changed the Game. In most languages today, the game piece in question is known as the queen or the lady, whereas some still use the original term vizier, meaning advisor. Hmm. Chess as we know it, as you said, is a strategy game that simulates warfare. And whether or not you know how to play or like chess, you probably know a couple of things. First, The king sits back, Mm -hmm. directing the strategy. If he dies or is trapped, you lose the game. The pawns up front, who some will argue are the most important, even though they're wrong, (laughs) are the frontline soldiers whose purpose it is to guard the valuable pieces and die on their behalf, which is where we get phrases like, oh, you're just a pawn Mm. because we're just using you to get to a higher purpose. Mm The powerful pieces in back consist of the knights, the rooks, which represent the king's castle, and the bishops, which are like the elegant strategist warriors. Hmm. But the most powerful piece on any chessboard capable of outmaneuvering and overpowering all other pieces is the queen. She's able to move any number of squares vertically, horizontally, or diagonally, both forwards and backwards, combining the power of the rook and the bishop. Hold on. She can move any number of squares? As far as she wants. What? So if you're on one side of the board and somebody's vulnerable on the other side of the board, she can go straight across and take that piece and then next move go straight back. But she can't go through it like through pieces. No. Okay. She stops at the piece where the, the next piece that she would come in contact with in that straight line. Okay. A queen on the chessboard is typically worth about nine pawns, which is actually slightly stronger than a rook and bishop combined. The reason for this is she's more mobile and not restricted to one color or one direction. The queen captures another piece by occupying the square on which the enemy piece sits. So even though losing the king is how you lose the game, the queen is how you win the game. Mm. She's often kept in the back for a while so as not to have her get captured. Mm -hmm. New players often use the queen a lot because they're trying to like bombard the other side, but that's not a good strategy. (laughs) And actually early queen attacks are rare in highbrow chess. So why? Why is a game based on ancient warfare is the female piece, the only female piece on the board is the strongest piece on the board. So here's why. Chess originated in India around the year 500. Really? In a game called Chaturanga. Chaturanga? Yeah. Oh, that's like... Chaturanga. Yeah. That is a yoga move. Is it? Oh, yes, it is. Chaturanga to up dog. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're right. I wonder if it's about like movement because that's like a... Like I feel like... I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like... It means four parts. Chaturanga means four parts. I guess that makes sense because I feel like you're transitioning between like a couple different movements Mm. when you transition from yeah i was like i don't know why i know this word (laughs) yeah (laughs) like this word i've heard it before so we don't know the exact rules of that game but the key elements were the same as chess again it means four parts and the four elements were the parts of the indian military chariots elephants horsemen and pawns these pieces move almost exactly the same as pieces do on a modern chess board 
at the back, there was a king who couldn't really fight, and it was the army's job to protect him. This makes sense in terms of modern war because the game is meant to represent what would happen, right? There would be a king standing in the back telling people what to do, but if you kill the king, you can take over the country. Right. So the king is in the back, but in this game, there was no queen. There is no queen in original Hmm. chess. There was a trusted advisor or counselor, but this was not his wife or co-regent. The man next to him would have been intelligent, but not extremely talented in war or warfare. This piece, much like the king, can only move one space at a time. So a king can go one up, one back, one side, one side. This this advisor piece could go diagonally one space at a time. Okay. But that's it. Not a lot of fancy moves like the queen we have today. Mm-hmm. As we know, when you set a modern chessboard, each player starts with one queen in the place of prominence where this advisor would have been. She is his wife. She is his right-hand woman. She is the center of the board directly next to the king. So it's not like the king is in the center and then she flanks him on one side. The two of them are the center. Like it's an even number Mm -hmm. of boxes. The white queen starts on D1 and the black queen starts on D8. And if you orient the board correctly, that means the white queen starts on a white square and the black queen starts on a black square, which is where we get phrases to start the game. Like when you're young and you're learning to set up chess, they'll say the queen gets her color. And it's like, that's how you kind of know where to set the pieces. Interesting. I never played chess as a kid. I only played checkers. Mm. Yeah, they'll say some, some people say like the dress matches the shoes, they would say. So like you put her on that piece. But my, my dad always said the queen gets her color. Interesting. And that's how you know where to set her. So versions of Chaturanga spread around the Middle East and also caught on in China. As the game traveled, people started adding twists to the game But for the next thousand years, the piece next to the king was always a weak counselor. Hmm. For a thousand years, there's no queen on the chessboard. This version of chess eventually made it to Spain after the Arabian Empire conquered the region. Over the next few centuries, chess became a craze in medieval Europe. It is a game much like today that was considered a game for intellects and noble people and was acceptable use of leisure time. Like when you're (laughs) sitting around in your study, it wasn't a waste of time like other games like that people were playing in bars like Mm -hmm. cards or whatever. And if you look at the game, that makes sense. It's all about social hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And it's about how to conquer the other side of the board. Kind of like how Monopoly got famous because it came out during the Great Depression. Oh, It was like, originally when they started pitching Monopoly, they were like, nobody's going to get it. There's too many rules. It's too hard. But people in that era were obsessed with money. Huh. So it just caught on. I didn't know that it came out during the Depression. Yeah. It's fascinating. So the same way with chess, it's like this is when people were trying to conquer mm. other places. So like it just made sense to play that game. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting point to note here that at this time in history, both men and women played the game equally. Ah. And it was seen as something for the wealthy and was not gendered. Interesting. So, like, women would sit around in their tea time rooms playing chess as well. Huh. And they just did that. But in Europe, during the medieval period, the counselor piece started to be called the queen. 
Depending on translation, sometimes we saw the woman, the spouse, the king's daughter, the old woman, or the lady. We don't really know how or when the change happened, especially because first it was just semantics. Mm -hmm. The queen still moved one diagonal in each direction, Mm -hmm. just like the advisor had before. So it was just a change of a name, not really the game. The queen's early movements were then described by people in medieval England. They compared it to sin. They were like, oh, well, the characters like the king can move forward and backward in straight lines. The queen can only move diagonally because of her inferior morality. What? So it's like even though the counselor had done that previously now that it's a female character the diagonal movements are (laughs) likened to her being morally inferior what that's so stupid i know (laughs) it doesn't make any sense one medieval commenter wrote her move is a slant only because women are so greedy that they will take nothing except by injustice that's an actual (laughs) quote she's a slant only But by the end of the 15th century or the 1400s, a variant of the game came out called Queen's Chess, which is what we play today. (gasps) Queen's Chess started to sweep Europe. Queen's Chess included the modern movements of the queen and made for a shorter and more exciting game. Mm. In a poem called, quote, Love Chess, we have our earliest description of the modern movements of the queen and also the bishop but in this poem it describes how the peace of the queen can travel all the way across the board in every direction um the historian marilyn that i said i read sections of her book earlier argued that this change did not only make the game more fun but it was a representation of european culture at the time The queen became a dangerous piece because of the examples of dangerous female rulers all over Europe. So because of Europe's belief in like divine power, like if you're a monarch, then God bestowed the right to rule upon you so those women could lead. Mm -hmm. Because of that, they saw the queen on the chessboard as more powerful. Fascinating, And it's the same way as like a lot of queens would be like, no, I can have this power, but my women subjects can't. It was like that. Like like they're the exception to the rule. Right. Like because I have divine blood in my veins, (laughs) you know, like I am kind of an all powerful woman. Right. Whereas like men can be a pawn and still be on the chessboard, Mm -hmm. but only one woman is on the chessboard. Mm. And it's the powerful queen one. (laughs) (laughs) But. One interesting thing is that Queen Isabella of Spain at this whole intersection became one of the most powerful people in Europe. Earliest versions of chess, Queen's chess, came from Spain. Huh. So there are people who believe that Queen Isabella like subconsciously influenced Queen's chess. Very interesting. Because she was the one that sent Columbus, Columbus abroad. Okay. Yeah, she financed him. During Isabella's reign, um, the chess queen's mobility multiplied, making her the most powerful piece on the board. There are multiple theories of why this happened. One, some people say new rules were adopted. It made the game better. It blended the tactics of strategy. It made it faster. In this way, the queen was the weakest player, so they just made it the strongest player. It was Mm -hmm. the easiest change to make. May as well do it. 
don't whatever we could have done that to any player don't give the queen all that much hype yeah. not a big deal <laughs> some say queen's chess was one variable of many different variables like i.e house rules okay. you know like how some people put money in the middle of the monopoly board when you hit park place or like whatever or not park place when you hit free parking so you can take money off the middle Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. so, I, I haven't played Monopoly since the power went out when I was in third grade. So, yeah, there's just so many, like, house rules. Like, some people, when you play Monopoly at your house, play differently than if you play at someone else's house. Okay, like Uno. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and everybody has their own little rules, and just they're saying that Queen's Chess is just a house rule that's stuck. That's spread, okay. Right. And everybody kind of started doing it. But then... Like I said, some people really say that Isabella of Spain was the reason for this. Quote, chess's evolution reflects the society in which queens were achieving an awesome status. And they say of Isabella of Spain, she was a militant queen more powerful than her husband. And she had arisen in Castile. Why not on the chessboard as well? Some historians even wonder if she's the reason for that. As you said, when she married Ferdinand II, she was more powerful than him. She had more money than him. She financed Columbus's expedition. She established, as wrong as it was, the Spanish Inquisition. She was the first woman to appear on a U.S. coin mm. in 1893. She was on a U.S. postage stamp beside Columbus. Like <laughs> She's a very powerful queen yeah. that impacted the entire world. Other examples of powerful female monarchs during this shift were the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth I, Catherine, and Margaret of Austria. What's more interesting is the change didn't come all at once, but it dominoed around to different countries once they got a female leader. Queen's chess became more popular in Russia when Catherine the Great took the throne in the 1700s. Huh. So they started playing that variant when they had a queen as opposed to a king. That's so wild how it's like... you. <laughs> You know, people like to argue that, like, or whatever, that these women didn't make as many impacts as, like, you might think. And it's like, they're making impacts on this very minute level. <laughs> like, this little teeny, teeny board game. Yeah, that, like, they are affecting just from their sheer presence. Yeah. So it's always, like, that comment of, like, you know, why does it matter if, like, women are in this field? Because right. it's like... Or why does representation matter? Right. And it's like, this is exactly why representation matters. <laughs> yeah, because it, it impacts every section of your yeah. life. Mm -hmm. And like, imagine playing a board game like chess your whole life and having no female characters. Yeah. Then it's like, oh, I guess women aren't supposed to be in war or government or yeah. knights or a castle or a bishop. Like, right. all the things you can be, yeah. none of them are women. No. Of course, there's backlash, <laughs> of course, in making the most powerful piece on the board female, um, as conservatives thought that it would make more women eager for power in real life. <laughs> in fact, some versions of Queen's chess did not allow the pawn to become a queen. So here's the rule. If you get your pawn all the way across the board to the other side, your pawn can be promoted mm. and you can make it any other character. Mm-hmm. Oh, that you choose? Mm -hmm. Oh. And most people, when you get your pawn to the other side, you make your pawn also a queen. Yeah. Because you want it to be able to move literally anywhere. Right. But some people were very against making the pawn a queen because they said that it made their king become scandalously bigamous. <laughs> 
It's like, what is this, Mormon chess? I, I mean, don't like all, this. All he does <laughs> is like have mistresses on the side. Yeah. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, at that point, it's like, you just don't want to admit that the queen's the most powerful player. Yeah, you don't want to admit that, like, if given the chance, you would become the queen. Right. <laughs> exactly. So they didn't do that. But eventually, objections to that faded, and the queen became the most valuable player. Uh, MBB, um, <laughs> where you can promote a pawn to queen. And in chess, even if your queen is still on the board, you can promote the pawn to queen. So you can have two queens at the same time. Interesting. There was also a negative impact, though, hmm. to adding this big power to the queen. Some historians say that as the rules changed in chess so did the vibe to allow women to play it there were thoughts against women too they said oh so women think they can go anywhere if they can do anything she can take anything she wants and they started in like making up nicknames for the game like instead of queen's chess it would be like mad women's chess mm. or hysterical women's chess and they were like, she can chase you around the board. She can box you into a corner. She'll swallow you whole, like almost like she's a siren, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, it was a bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow. And like I said, ironically, because of the queen's new power um, on the board, it, con it contributed to the dwindling number of females practicing in playing mm. chess after the Renaissance. Because the game used to be a leisurely pursuit that went on for days. It's slow. All the players can only move a little bit. It's set up in the tea room. You do it in between stitching and mm -hmm. piano practice and painting and etiquette lessons. But now that it was fast and it could be done in like an hour or two, people are writing books about strategy and they're making up moves and they're becoming really good at it and inventing new fast ways to do it and setting up competitions and competitions are fully masculinized and women aren't allowed to participate in those. So you can no longer dilly dally in chess. It's a truly competitive sport that has no place for women. Mm. And in that, I do want to bring up the Queen's Gambit as the mm -hmm. show. Like you said, um, obviously that focused on a woman making it in the chess world. There are many women who have done that, and mm -hmm. you should definitely look into it. But the reason it's called the Queen's Gambit, it is that's the most popular opening chess move. Really? So chess moves all have names or huh. like chess strategies. And you can open your chess board with a number of moves. But mm -hmm. the Queen's Gambit is the oldest one wherein I believe you move, because the white side always goes first, mm -hmm. you move your C3 pawn forward to sacrifice it. But if the black pawn on the other side takes that pawn, it puts them in danger. Okay. So your goal is you're hoping, I think it puts them in danger of the queen getting them, which is okay. why it's called the queen's gambit or something like that. Somebody who's better at chess could yeah. explain it better. <laughs> but like... The whole idea is that when you go to set up your first move at a chess competition, the person across from you knows what you're doing. They know the name of your play. Yeah. You know, it's like when you throw a fastball or a slider or like right. I, you're doing the queen's gambit. Okay. Now I'm going to fight it back with this play. Yeah. So that's why it's named that. And I thought that Very was interesting. cool. Okay. I mean, I loved that show. That, that show was so good. <laughs> Amazing. I feel like it made a lot of young girls want to play chess, uh, which is cool. Yes, it did. 
Women today comprise fewer than 10% of the world's competitive players, and only 1% of the top 100 players in the world are women. Hmm. Women who uh, achieve chess mastery are called queens of the game, which is kind of cute. Yeah. Behind such a compliment, though, is the reality that on and off the board, successful women are the exception to the rule. Chess is a real-life example of female status, but one that is played out in chess, just like real life, is predominantly masculine in the playing field. So this is just one small facet of life that can shine through into the rest of existence. Amazing. And that's the background (laughs) of the queen on the chessboard. That was so cool. I just didn't, I would never have thought that it had such a rich history. Yeah. That was very cool. Just that she didn't even exist for the first thousand years of the game. Yeah. Like the the most famous game, probably, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, so I just found that very, very interesting. And I know it was a short story, but I thought it was interesting for Q because I thought about doing specific queens. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then I was like, no, that's not their name. But this piece, that is her name. That is her name. She is just the queen. Yeah. Well, and shout out to uh, Charles Vincent. You gave us so many Q. <laughs> so many Qs. So many Q recommendations. So we do thank you for that. Uh, I think this is a very... And that we will get to them someday, though. Yeah, we will. The They're all cues. on the list. They're all on yeah. the list. Miss so. Krista gave us a whole bunch on um, Patreon as well. <sighs> Perfect. We got a lot of Q recommendations. We could do a whole Q season we now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be right back with part two. Let's do it. Right, second half. Part two. We're going to get a little biophysical. Ooh. That's a term, right? Yeah, biophysical. biophysical? Sure. Bio-physical. Yeah. Biophysical. Physical. Yeah, we're going to get into some biology. We're going to get some chemistry. It's going to be really fun. Good this with the R's? Sure. R's, R's, R's. <laughs> you're in, that's our, your letter now. It is. It is. Um, it's funny, too, because there was a, I was looking through a book, uh, my Thing I got for women's history, Secret Santa, Secret mm-hmm. Sandra Day O'Connor, um, The Bad Women of History. It's such a great book, and I actually got this person from there because I'd never heard of her before. Oh, very cool. Well, I haven't heard of her either. Perfect. So you're going to learn a lot. Um, do you want to know what you're about to drink? I do. <laughs> it looks really nice. It's a very classic Katie. Yes, it is. Pink with green planty garnish. Yes. <laughs> So this is called Silent Spring. So you muddle black plums with fresh ginger, and then you add two ounces of bourbon, an ounce and a half of cranberry juice, and you shake it all up, and then you garnish the whole thing with mint. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's almost like deep and spicy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I think it's that muddled ginger. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what hits. Because I thought about doing ginger liqueur, and then I was like, no, I really want like the spiciness of like fresh cut. I mean, I peeled it. And yeah, I put there's it nothing in like I that. watched you. I watched <laughs> you peel and slice the ginger. It was lovely. Mm. I like that a lot. All right. So what do you know about Rachel Carson? <laughs> I know that she did scientific work in the Chesapeake Bay. Perfect. And that's <laughs> it. All right. Well, let's get into it. Um, it's funny because 
There are a lot of biographies written about her, actually. I didn't um, have access to any of them, so I didn't read any of them. <laughs> also, I didn't decide I was doing Rachel Carson until Tuesday, so that kind of put a hindrance on things. Um, so I got most of this from Wikipedia, actually. So again, apologies if I'm wrong. And I got most of it from YouTube videos, too. So PBS did a thing on her, and then there were a whole bunch of other, like, small, like, 10-minute-long documentaries. So I basically oh, pieced together, like, five different 10-minute-long documentaries. Perfect. That's how you have to do it sometimes. I mean, sometimes. I know a ton about the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't know anything about this woman. Perfect. So... Rachel Carson was born on May 27th, 1907, on a family farm near Springdale, Pennsylvania, which is up by the Allegheny River where it meets Pittsburgh. She was the daughter of Maria Frazier and Robert Warden Carson. Uh, her father was an insurance salesman. Her family lived on a 65-acre plot of land, and Rachel was always outside exploring. And if she wasn't outside, she was inside reading and writing. From an early age, she loved to read and write. She usually combined her two loves uh, by writing about animals. And it's no surprise that Beatrix Potter was one of her favorite authors. <laughs> she even had one of her stories that she wrote published when she was just 10 years old in like this magazine. <laughs> uh, and she attended Springdale's small school through the 10th grade. Then she completed high school in nearby Parnassus, Pennsylvania, graduating in 1925 at the top of her class. Rachel soon attended the Pennsylvania College for Women, which is now Chatham University, and she was doing great academically, but people often described her as a loner. Um, this is something that would come to define her her entire life. She just kind of liked to be off doing her own thing. She was very, very quiet. Um, she... Yeah, just something people always said about her. Mm. <laughs> she initially pursued her creative endeavors, becoming an English major, but then in 1928, she decided to switch to biology. She still kept up with the pen, though, working for the college newspaper and contributing to their literary magazine. In 1929, she graduated magna cum laude and went on to graduate school at Johns Hopkins University, where she studied zoology and genetics. Johns Hopkins! <laughs> After her first year of graduate school, she became a part-time student, uh, taking an assistantship in Raymond Pearl's laboratory, where she worked with rats and drosophila which is a type of fly because <laughs> uh, she needed to earn money for tuition. I mean, her family wasn't super well off. So she kind of kept getting sidelined in her um, academic endeavors by a lack of money. Mm. So at this point, she's going to school part-time because she just can't afford to be a, a full-time student. So she's working with flies to yes. pay her way through school. Yes. It's an alternative to stripping. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> in 1932, she earned her master's degree in zoology after writing her dissertation on the embryonic development of the proneferous in fish. I'm Love sure that. I pronounced that incorrectly. I don't know what a proneferous is, but I'm guessing it's some kind of reproductive thing. <laughs> She intended on sailing right through to her doctorate degree, but unfortunately, the Great Depression was in full swing, and she had to find a full-time job to help her family make ends meet. So, like many women of her time, she became a teacher right out of her master's degree. But then in 1935, her father died suddenly. And now, Rachel 
is left as the sole provider and caretaker for her aging mother. So she needed to make a little more money than just teaching. So one of her mentors at Hopkins found a job that Rachel seemed to really fit into. It was just a temporary job, but it was for the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries. But not like the normal type of job that I was expecting from a place like that. Uh, She got a job writing radio copy for a series of weekly educational broadcasts entitled Romance Under the Waters. (laughs) So... She was doing a fish podcast, basically. It went for 52 episodes. Each were just seven minutes long, but they were designed to get people interested in the field of marine biology. She's like, yeah, I feel like every kid wants to be a marine biologist now. Yeah. (laughs) That or a TikTok star. Um, So now Rachel is not the first person writing for this program, but she was the most successful. People say that she incorporated poetic language into the way she talked about the water and the ocean and the fish, which really resonated with people. Do you think also because she was a teacher, she was just better at explaining things like in a like, hey, this is this is fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything has been leading up to this, like her being a teacher, her not having a lot of money and having to find like jobs and working like I think a lot of people who went to college during these days, especially and before this, they were from wealthy families that could afford to send them. So like, I don't think a lot of them had a lot of experience working with the general public. So she was like, Oh, I know how to talk to them. Cause oh, I yeah, am, yeah. I am a general public. The hierarchy, she's a pawn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I also wonder like, was she trying to promote this for marine biology for everybody or specifically for girls for everybody everybody so just wasn't a big field at the time no it wasn't okay got it so um so she's doing this radio program people are loving it and the higher ups in this bureau really start to notice her because she's the first person to make marine biology cool and interesting Uh, so they start giving her more tasks for the bureau, like writing brochures and pamphlets, again, trying to entice people into the field. And she was also taking some freelance work, writing articles about the Chesapeake Bay and other marine stuff for the Baltimore Sun. Then in 1936, they decided they needed to have this girl on staff full time. She outscored all of the other applicants in her civil service exam and soon became the second woman ever hired by the Bureau of Fisheries for a full-time professional position. She became a junior aquatic biologist. So she's writing, she's observing, she's studying, she's getting people to simply fall in love with the migratory patterns of fish. But a year later, in 1937, her older sister dies. Mm. This left Rachel, who was already responsible for her ailing mother, remember, in charge of her sister's two daughters. So now she needs to do (laughs) even more because she has more people under her care. Right. So she decides that she is going to expand her writing career. There was an article she had written for the fisheries brochure called The World of Waters. But her bosses were like, Rachel, this is too good to be a simple brochure so she changed the name to undersea and it got published in the atlantic this article was a vivid narrative of a journey along the ocean floor and people were so 
just enthralled with how she wrote about the magic under the sea that then Simon and Schuster reached out to her and asked her if she wanted to expand it into a whole book about the ocean. <laughs> So in 1941, she published her first book, Under the Sea Wind, which didn't sell too well, but it got really good reviews. So she's working, she's writing, she's getting stuff published, she's taking care of these kids, she is working her way up in the Fisheries Bureau, and by 1945, she was supervising a small writing staff. And by 1949, she became the chief editor of publications for the entire government department. No way. Yeah. So she's happy with her new and higher positions because it provided her more freedom uh, when it came to what she could choose for her fieldwork and her writing assignments. She was making more money and she's getting money from all the stuff she's writing to help provide for her family. But there was also a lot of tedious work involved in running the department. So eventually she made the difficult decision to leave her job and become a full-time writer. That year, she took on a literary agent, Marie Rodell, and they formed a close professional relationship that would last for Rachel's entire career. And soon, Oxford University Press became interested in the proposal for her second book, all about the life history of the ocean. By 1950, she was publishing chapters of this book she was writing in various magazines and journals. Um, so by the time her second book called The Sea Around Us was published in 1951, there was already a lot of buzz around it because people had been reading snippets of it. And this book quickly shot to the best seller list. <laughs> no way. The Sea Around Us remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 86 weeks. That's insane because it's usually like novels. Yeah. 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 Like this is crazy to me. It won the 1952 National Book Award for nonfiction. It also won the John Burroughs Medal. And it resulted in Rachel being awarded two honorary doctorates. Now I want to read this book. I know. So basically this book solidified her position as America's scientific poet. It's, again, her combining her natural creative writing skills with the world of science, which people just weren't doing. She was getting people to feel passionately about something that they didn't really ever think about. They're like, yeah, there's the water. There are fish in there. Hmm. But now she's writing things like, who has known the ocean? Neither you nor I, with our earthbound senses, know the foam and the surge of the tide that beats over the crab hiding under the seaweed of his tide pool home, or the lilt of the long, slow swells of mid-ocean where shoals of wandering fish prey and are preyed upon, and the dolphin breaks the waves to breathe the upper atmosphere. The lobster feels his way with nimble wariness through the perpetual twilight. <laughs> I almost named the cocktail a lobster in perpetual twilight. Yeah, that's it's so good. I mean, obviously. <laughs> but that's like why people are so into it because they're like, I'm learning science, but I'm also just like reading a gorgeous poem. Right. <laughs> the success of her second book, also led to the re um, republication of that first book, which then became a bestseller as well. <laughs> then Rachel took a really big step and licensed her book to become a documentary. Ooh. Yes. She wrote the script, gave it to the director of the film, this guy named Erwin Allen. But then when she got the revised script 
back from him, it was totally different. Different to the point where things that he was saying about the ocean were not true. (laughs) That's not a good editor. No, it is not. She said it was scientifically embarrassing describing this documentary as a cross between a believe it or not and a breezy travel log. Mm. She tried to invoke her right to review this script and, you know, change it back. And they said, oh, yeah, I mean, you can review it all you want. But it says right here in the contract that we have final say on the end result. So, yeah, you can review it and give us your notes, but we're not changing it. It really terrible. So the production went on scientific inaccuracies intact. It ended up winning the 1953 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. But Rachel was so upset by the whole experience that she never sold the film rights to anything ever again. In 1955, she published the third installment of her underwater trilogy called The Edge of the Sea. It focused on life in coastal ecosystems, particularly along the eastern seaboard. It received good reviews, but didn't quite make the same splash that the sea around us had. But with her trilogy intact, she decided to make a prominent shift towards studying and writing about conservation Hmm. because she was starting to get concerned about the impact that humans were having on the earth. Same. But in the midst of her new career path, tragedy struck her family again. One of those nieces that she had been caring for since her sister died suddenly passed away. Like, so many members of her family had and she left behind a five-year-old son named roger so rachel had yet another child to take care of suddenly that was not hers i feel so bad for like and like she's not even like married right no she's she's just just a single lady trying to do her science and like like raising all these kids that aren't hers yeah she's like taking on the responsibility of a lot of people yeah so she moved with roger and her mother who is also still alive and who she's caring for at this point to silver spring maryland but she did spend most of her summers in maine for research it was here in silver spring that she started writing her latest book called silent spring this was going to be a sharp contrast to her first three books So her first couple of books celebrated the natural world and showed people how amazing it really is. And Silent Spring was going to highlight just how precarious that world is and how we could lose it if we're not careful. And according to Rachel, one of the biggest threats to our world was something called DDT. Dichloral, diphenyl, trichlorothane, trichlorothane (laughs) was created in the late 1800s but then it kind of sat on a shelf until the 1930s when a scientist discovered that this random chemical seemed to be really good at killing insects while remaining completely safe for humans Hmm. this was a huge scientific breakthrough whether you have one little tomato plant on your porch or you have a full-on farm pests are a really big fucking nuisance and the idea of having a solution to this problem was the next million dollar idea so people in the u.s started spraying it on everything crops obviously to start with and then they were spraying suburban neighborhoods with it people are putting it in paint and painting their doorways and of course spraying the inside of their house as well it sounds a lot like the radium girls like let's just use this dangerous product we know very little about exactly it like 
I was blown away by the footage of the DDT spraying. Like there was one scene or like it's a bunch of kids literally sitting at a picnic table eating food and they're spraying them with these clouds of DDT. It is so weird to see. It, it's alarming. That's that's very crazy. It is said that by 1959, 80 million pounds of DDT were being spread in the U.S. every year. And then there's also the other side to this million-dollar idea. In the 40s, American soldiers are suddenly being shipped across the world to fight in World War II. So the U.S. government launches a campaign to spread DDT across the battlefields to protect soldiers from insect-borne diseases, mainly ones spread by mosquitoes. And, you know, obviously there are still videos of planes cruising over these lands spraying DDT. I mean, malaria was such a big threat to soldiers that if you could get rid of that threat and, like, not have them dying of malaria, you could focus on fighting the other army instead of fighting these awful bugs. Well, you said World War II? Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like didn't World War I, didn't so many people die of infection in the yeah. trenches that it was, like, basically, like, equal numbers, yeah, I feel equal like, to, like, combat, on, yeah. like, war. Exactly. So... An example of how they were using DDT in World War II um, is really interesting. So after Naples was freed from, what is it, the Axis, right? Yeah, one of the Axis and powers. Axis, yep. The Axis powers. Um, they discovered that there was a huge typhus outbreak among the mass numbers of refugees. Huh. This is spread by lice. So they're like, perfect. We have something that kills bugs. So all across Naples, they set up spraying stations across the city. And so, again, they have footage of this. People lining up to get their bodies sprayed with DDT. I mean, spraying it into children's hair, into their shirts. And, like, men are opening up their pants and they're spraying it, like, down their pants. (laughs) Like, it is wild. But it worked. I mean, they stopped the typhus outbreak dead in its track. People were so grateful for this that one reporter said that instead of rice, people were spraying DDT on newlyweds <gasps> in Naples. Oh, God. <laughs> this chemical was seen. But what did it do to the wine from that year? <laughs> <laughs> Probably disgusting. This chemical was seen as. A miracle. And it was praised in journals and publications everywhere. The people who discovered it were given Nobel Prizes. Except for Rebecca, or Rachel. She's like, this is shitty. Yes. Okay. And in the midst of all this, you have Rachel Carson <laughs> piping up with her little voice saying, can we pause? Can we just not stop? Just slow it down a little bit. Like maybe not spraying the children at the picnic directly with this. <laughs> maybe don't like spray it down your pants. Exactly. Right. Rachel had been concerned about DDT as far back as the 1940s while she was still at the Fisheries Bureau. Scientists in Maryland had started to notice that areas with widespread use of DDT were seeing higher death rates of animals and birds and fish. So Rachel threw herself into researching the invisible effects of DDT on the natural world and began writing about her findings. This led to her groundbreaking book, Silent Spring, so named because she said, if we do not stop the overuse of DDT, we will indeed have a silent spring because all of the birds will be dead. Mm. Now, Rachel is not the only person researching these effects. Uh, in fact, plenty of people were noticing what this chemical was doing. 
a clear case of this was the cranberry scandal, which is why I put cranberry juice in our cocktail. (laughs) In 1957, 58, and 59, crops of U.S. cranberries were found to contain high levels of the herbicide aminotriazole, which causes cancer. And it was, it was very clear, like, they had this study where they had all these rats, and it was, like, causing cancer in, like, 100%. And so because of they, they found like these massive numbers in the cranberries, the sale of all cranberry products was halted in the late 50s. This led to an FDA investigation and many hearings on the subject to figure out what to do about this. Rachel, of course, attended, but came away very discouraged by the sheer strength of the chemical companies to keep these things on the shelf when they were obviously causing harm. In her and other folks' research, they discovered a very strong link between the chemicals and the pesticides and cancer developing in humans and animals. Humans were being directly exposed, obviously, by the massive spraying campaigns, but there was also like an indirect exposure happening. So birds and fish were eating the pests killed by the pesticides. Then those birds and fish were being eaten by larger creatures who were then being processed for food and eaten by Americans. And it only accumulates because DDT in particular and many other pesticides are not water soluble. So when it gets consumed, it gets into the fat tissues and it keeps passing on and on and on through generations. Spoiler alert, DDT was banned in the 70s. And a scientist in a video I was watching said that it is still found in the current blue crab population because it just keeps getting passed on because it never goes away. Another clear sign of the issue was the rapid decline of the bald eagle population in the U.S. Bald eagles eat a lot of fish, and a lot of those fish had DDT in their systems. And what this was doing was it was causing the eggshells of the bald eagle to be much weaker, and the embryos started failing. So it wasn't exactly that the eagles were dying off, but there were fewer being born every year. And as for the effect on people... The main damage is that it is an endocrine disruptor. So some scientists argue that exposure to DDT can increase one's chances of getting cancer, particularly breast, liver, or testicular. So parts of the endocrine system. And there are also studies that link pregnancy difficulties with DDT exposure since the ovaries are also acutely affected. And this is the exact type of long-term damage that Rachel was worried about. She goes, yes, it's not like, you know, uh, like a harmful gas or something. It's not like carbon monoxide where if you, like, consume it, like, you just, like, if you breathe it in, you die immediately. Yeah, it's the long-term effects. It's the long-term effects. And, you know, again, not just for bald eagles, but for people. She could see that DDT was not going away in humans. In fact, it had already started being passed down to babies via breast milk so it's just she was seeing so far ahead that she was like if we keep going with this it is going to be in generations from now like it's only this problem is only going to get worse because it only accumulates in Mm. our systems this is all to say that silent spring was her way of speaking up in fact some called the aftermath of this book to be called the noisy summer (laughs) Because it caused a really big conversation. Some people loved what she was doing and they started getting more involved with conservation efforts and standing up against potentially harmful chemicals. But a ton of people hated what she was doing with a passion. 
people started to attack Rachel Carson in all sorts of personal ways. They even wrote op-eds about, like, why does she even care so much about the future of children anyways since she doesn't have any? Oh, right. She's an unfit woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because she's never given birth. Right. (laughs) They, of course, also called her a communist and a cat-loving lesbian and all sorts of shit. Chemical and pesticide companies also published numerous reports debunking Rachel's findings and even and one even sued her for libel. But she stood her ground and fought every chance she got, testifying before the Senate on multiple occasions. But it was certainly getting people's attention. In fact, just a year after Silent Spring was published, President John F. Kennedy ordered his scientific advisory committee to investigate the book and its claims, and they found that she was correct. So in 1970, the Environmental Protection Agency was established, and they held seven months of hearings, starting in 1971, with scientists giving evidence for and against DDT. She's the reason for the Environmental Protection Agency. That's insane. (laughs) That's insane. Then in the summer of 1972, the government announced the cancellation of most uses of DDT. So it was banned. Not totally, but mostly. Still to this day, though, the banning of DDT has come under much scrutiny. Some Some people even say that Rachel Carson should be considered a mass murderer. Because there are still millions of people who die from malaria every year, especially across, you know, the various countries in Africa. And some people argue that DDT would not have, or sorry, some people argue that if DDT would have stuck around for longer and not been banned, malaria and other insect transmitted diseases, diseases would be completely eradicated by now. But that's just not true. And we know it because one of Rachel's other theories in her research turned out to be true. Rachel suggested that one of the other potential potential pitfalls of the overuse of DDT is that many insects, especially mosquitoes, would become immune to it Mm. because of its overuse. For example, in Burkina Faso, DDT has not been banned in any way, but malaria still thrives because the DDT-resistant mosquitoes have flourished in the area. And here's the thing. Rachel was never actually calling for a complete ban on the substance. She was instead encouraging responsible and carefully managed use with awareness of the chemical's impact on the entire ecosystem. In fact, she concludes her section on DDT in Silent Spring, not by urging a total ban, but with advice for spraying as little as possible to limit the development of this resistance that has now caused a whole new host of problems. (laughs) So now, following in Rachel Carson's footsteps, scientists are working on environmentally conscious evolution-proof solutions to mosquito-driven illnesses with her research in mind. And also following her lead, environmental awareness groups are still heavily present around the U.S., and they use Silent Spring as a source of inspiration to fight against measures that could potentially harm the planet. But Rachel Carson would not live to see any of this happen not even the end of DDT. No. During the most intense years of her fighting against the chemical industry, Rachel was also secretly battling breast cancer. 
She didn't disclose this fact to the public because she was afraid that people would then use it as a way to prove that she was being biased and making everything up because she's mad that she's sick. Right. And then on April 14th, 1964, severely weakened from her spreading cancer, Rachel died from a heart attack at the age of 56. Her body was cremated. And then there was a bit of a fight to determine where she would rest in peace. Her brother... Didn't realize she had one at this point. Where was he throughout all this bullshit? Hasn't been there. Um, He said, well, she should be buried next to our mother in the cemetery in Silver Spring. But one person was standing up for what Rachel wanted. Dorothy Freeman knew that Rachel wanted her ashes to be scattered along the rocky shores of Sheepscot Bay in Maine. This is a very special place to Rachel because it was where she did a lot of her marine research and it was also where she met Dorothy. In 1953, Rachel had moved to Maine and she received a letter from this woman named Dorothy Freeman welcoming her to the neighborhood. This began an incredible friendship that would last for the next 11 years. The two mostly exchanged letters. It is said that they exchanged around 900 letters over the years, some with very personal sentiments one of the letters from rachel to dorothy reads but oh darling i want to be with you so terribly that it hurts while another dorothy writes i love you beyond expression my love is boundless as the sea the two shared a wonderful companionship that as far as we know consisted of occasional farewell kisses hand holding Definitely a lot of letter writing and summers together talking endlessly about their love of biology and the natural world. We've said on the show before that we don't like to explicitly label folks from the past, so we won't do that today. But I can say for certain that these two women loved each other immensely. The picture is cut a little short because they burned many of their letters before Rachel's death, but in her last letter she wrote to Dorothy... Never forget, dear one, how deeply I have loved you all these years. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. So that's like the kind of disjointed story of Rachel Carson. I feel bad because I didn't, I, I don't know a lot about science. And I'm trying to grasp this whole DDT thing. Um, and that's that. <laughs> I mean, that's a really, I mean, it's an interesting story that she... You know, it's hard to look ahead multi-generationally as a scientist and say, like, okay, like, I know it's not hurting the current bald eagles, but right. what's going to happen in the next generation? Which, right. like, also, to be fair, is, like, what a lot of people were worried about with COVID vaccines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although that's an entirely different situation. Right. We had used all those drugs before <laughs> right. and just put them in a new thing. But, like, it is because of situations like her that we think like that now. Mm-hmm. It's because of things like Zika that we, like, are like, huh, should I, what should I do in this situation? Right. That we all question. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. She's really, she's really fucking cool. Yeah. And I think it's also very interesting that she wrote all those best-selling books just about nature. <laughs> I would have never thought that no. a book like that would be on the best-seller list. I just need Morgan Freeman to read the Audible Exactly. Books. Okay. All right. So now we're going to talk about these two ladies in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. So I think the biggest like connection I saw between them is that they are playing the long game. They're looking, they're thinking ahead, both of these, the piece and the person, mm-hmm. 
are looking ahead. They're not pawns. They're not throwaway pieces. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a, they're both a strategy game. It's, yes. They're both a strategy piece. Um, she is scientifically saying, like, yes, this works. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's just figure out how we use this DDT. Mm-hmm. And the same is true with the queen. You mm-hmm. can't use it too much up front. Mm-hmm. You got to hold back a little bit. Yep. You got to make sure it hits the right positions at the right time. Mm-hmm. But it's very powerful when you do use it. Yeah, exactly. And I also think that's interesting comparing this to chess because pawns will get taken you will sacrifice some some things some people some animals to the furtherment of scientific research Mm -hmm. you know some rats in these studies got cancer and died while they were trying to figure out what the effects of ddt were right you know that's just a fact of the The sacrificial lamb Exactly. And I think that it's all about how you use those pawns and those sacrificial pieces because Rachel is saying, hey, let's not use just the general public as our pawns. (laughs) Let's hold off on spraying children at the picnic with this substance that we don't know the long-term effects of, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's what both of these the piece and the woman are trying to do is like using the pieces more wisely. And I think it's interesting that I think the vizier who was the original male character would have been the one to be like, yep, yep. DDT, throw it at him. Like kill the pawns, kill him here, kill him there. Yeah. Cause also if you think about it too, the original vizier is not moving very much Uh -uh. at all. And I think that that's the difference also is like DDT was like a swift, brutal, short attack. Mm -hmm. And Rachel's like, no, we have to think about this a little longer. (laughs) It can't be a swift, brutal attack because that's not how ecology works. Right. And it's also like the point where it's like if you get the pawn across Mm -hmm. the board, it can become a queen. Yes. If we figure out how to use it correctly, it can be done right. Yep. Like there's so many like connections between taking a breath and mm-hmm. really trying with science the same way there is with chess. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting that like, you know, we didn't have a queen in chess for a thousand years. And then what happened when we got her, the game got better. Mm-hmm. And I think about that with women in science, you know, what happens when we include people in these scientific worlds? It gets better because you have more people piping up and saying like, hey, that's not right. Right. Because <laughs> if you don't have a diversity in opinion, then you can't see the full picture. And that's true. And think about family structure was the same way. Like mm-hmm. when Rachel was growing up, if your dad dies, you're left destitute. Mm-hmm. When chess occurs, when the king is gone, the game is over. Mm-hmm. But there are more pieces on the board yeah. that, that still need to exist. Yep. Rachel still had to take care of her family. Mm-hmm. She still needed to raise money and get a job and raise all these kids that weren't hers. And she had such like a protective nature over these people she could have walked away oh she totally lived her scientific life with her best-selling author and she chose not to Mm -hmm. now the queen in chess doesn't get that Mm -hmm. 
sometimes actually towards the end of the game there are moves where you sacrifice the queen mm -hmm. if you look three steps ahead and you realize you can get checkmate now this only happened a couple times in like famous chess battles <laughs> from what i was reading about <laughs> this week but like it is interesting that that male figure mm -hmm. For many of the stories we've covered, it's like the dad's gone, now the family's destitute because women weren't allowed to do anything. Yeah. But the queen can move everywhere. Mm -hmm. So let her. Yeah. Let her. When it's interesting, too, because then, like, it's like suddenly when women start to do something, it's devious, you know? And you're talking about, like, this huge backlash that came when the queen became this prominent character. And I feel like Rachel had such a similar type of backlash and you know it's always taking to taken to this very um petty level too where it's like rachel says something and that she has studied <laughs> and she has researched both herself and like with other people and they don't like what she's saying so they're calling her you know a cat loving lesbian which like was she a lesbian? Maybe. Like, she was definitely having this very intense relationship with this person. Like cats and, and who Maine? doesn't like cats? But, like, you know, it's like, it's like, you don't like what she's saying. So you're resorting to, like, calling her, like, a name. Like, that's so, that's so silly. And, like, how, like, all of a sudden it's like, you know, the vizier was moving across the chessboard in all these years. And, like, or, like, before it was, like, really named the queen they had all these chess moves or whatever. And then all of a sudden when she's doing it, it's like a reflection on women's morality. Mm -hmm. It's like, why, why, why did we change the narrative all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> Just because there's a woman threatening your power. Yeah. Well, cause I think they both reflect changes in society. You know, women are becoming more powerful. People are becoming more ecologically conscious, you know, and that's just, that's just something that's happening because People are sick of doing things. People are sick of things being done quickly and not well. And the pawns are feeling it. Mm. You know, it's yeah. like, well, it's the invisible impacts that yeah, you're talking about. Exactly. That people feel it, even though you don't see it. Animals feel it, mm -hmm. even though you don't see it. It's a freaking embryo inside of an eagle egg. But that yeah. matters. Yes, that matters. Yeah. And like, people are like, whatever, like the shells are thinner now. And she's like, but if the shells are thinner, they're more vulnerable. And if the embryos are harmed, then like they aren't, you know, it just throws everything off. So she's like, if there are less bald eagles, then there are less things eating the overpopulated salmon in the river. And then mm -hmm. the salmon gets overpopulated and that messes up something else. Like it's about looking at the whole picture, just like you would look at the whole chessboard. Right. You don't just look at the move in front of you. You look at the moves that preceded that and the moves that are ahead i don't again i don't know anything about chess but i think that's how it works but you know you have to pay attention to all the players you know like yes you might be sacrificing that pawn or that rook or whatever but how is that impacting the knight and the bishop and whatever you know it's like you have to take in the full picture you do and you also have to think about like i liked when um in chess, they were talking about how inexperienced players will always use the queen because it's so easy to understand. Forward, yep. back, side, diagonal, whatever you want. Yep. Like, just do it, do it, do it. But that that's threatening. Mm -hmm. If you use something because it's the only thing you understand, there's nuance. 
Yes. There's nuance. If just because you understand that this one thing kills mosquitoes doesn't mean you understand the nuance right. of all the other elements involved. Exactly. It's like people ca- calling her a, <laughs> a mask murderer yeah. because she stopped the you know widespread use of DDT, and they're like, "Well, then everyone who ever died of dies of malaria now. That's on your hands, Rachel Carson." <laughs> She's like. Actually, it's not because I told you that this would happen. Mm -hmm. I told you that if we used it too much, they would become immune and we would still be stuck with malaria. And we have malaria and the long-term effects of DDT now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Ah, so fascinating. I was very worried at first that they wouldn't have anything in common. And that was really cool. (laughs) All right. Are you ready to toast? Yeah. All right. Who would you like to toast this evening? I just want to toast to all the girls alone on the board and in the room. Oh, yes. Cheers to them. Cheers. <laughs> all right. I am going to toast the people who remind us to slow down. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Sometimes it is good to take a breather, survey your surroundings, and move with intention. And I think that's what Rachel wanted us to do. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? You know, this week I haven't really done much pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely enjoy the Wi-Fi where I'm from. No, I'm yeah. Um, you know, I... I've I've been reading a lot of books. I've been watching a lot of TV, but I really think the third season of Stranger Things, the fourth, fourth season oh. of Stranger Things, yeah, is so good. It's so, and I'm just good. like unreasonably proud of these children. <laughs> like I think they're so good. I think that the character development has been great. Mm-hmm. I think we got to see more of the kids' acting chops because yes. now they are old enough that there aren't like union laws about how much you yep. can use them. Mm-hmm. And I just it's a lot more jump scary. Oh, There's yeah. a lot of I don't I just there are certain side characters that just carried the season. Yeah. This season. It's just I so totally good. agree. It's interesting too because Case and I were talking about it last night, like it's making us want to go back and watch the whole series again because everything, since this is the final season, everything is connecting. Yeah, it all makes sense now. And you're like, oh, shit, like, what did I miss? Like, yeah. how has it all been leading up to this? Like, uh-huh. so I think we might go back and, like, since I think the episodes are coming out on a weekly basis, right? right? So it's not done yet, but we're all caught up. So I think we might go back and, like, watch a couple episodes from season one. Yeah. <gasps> It's re- it's really so nice to just watch the success of these kids. And then I watch, yeah. like, interviews with them, like Jimmy Fallon, and I'm I just know, so proud so of them. Cute. And the actress who plays Max. Yes. I don't know her name. Shame on me. But she was in the Taylor Swift video all too well about Taylor Swift's breakup with Jake Gyllenhaal. <gasps> Interesting. The one where I was like, he needs to get, like, a security tail because women are going to kill him. <laughs> now, <laughs> the Taylor fans. But I saw her in an interview with Jimmy Fallon. And he's like, so Taylor Swift just like called you and was like, I want you to be the main character in my music video. And she's like, yeah, that's what happened. And she's like, I didn't even know Taylor Swift knew who I was. Like, <laughs> she could have called me and been like, I want you to be a tree in yeah. my music video. And I would have been like, absolutely. So I just am so proud of them. And it's yeah. so good. It's it is so, so good. 
good. And now I'm hearing like the old 80s Stranger Things songs on my kids' TikTok account. Yep. Yeah, Kate Bush is making a lot of money right now, Uh and she deserves every penny of it. Every penny. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What are you into right now? So I was having kind of a down day. I'm having a down month, actually. But I was having a down day the other day, and I was so tired, and it was raining, and I was like... I'm just going to watch TV in like the middle of the day. And I turned on the TV and Netflix had recommended the movie. You've got mail. I love rom-coms. I'm a huge rom-com fan. I love that movie. And I have never, I realized (laughs) I've never seen any Meg Ryan movies. And I, I really hadn't. And like Betsy showed me when Harry met Sally the other week, which was fantastic. But then alone, I watched you've got mail and let's let me remind everyone this is uh june in baltimore it's hot it's muggy i think this was uh in a a 90 degree week and i was so charmed by this movie which takes place at this little local bookstore and the first part is in fall in new york i made myself a hot chai tea latte (laughs) while watching this fucking movie because it was so cozy i just I, I en- love that movie. I enjoyed it more than I ever expected to. And it was so fucking good. Yeah. So I just want to recommend it to everyone because it's perfect. A watch or a rewatch. <laughs> it's on my list of movies for girl um, movie nights when Jake's out of town with yes. the girls. So I'll have to pull that one up soon because I love yes. that movie. And let me know because I would love to watch it again because now I think it's going to be on my regular rotation. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We hope we hope you learned about chess and chemicals and everything else <laughs> under the sun. You can find us everywhere. We're on at Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You can see our cocktails two days before. We always post on Tipsy Tuesdays. Um, and really, we would love it if you rated and reviewed us, if you liked the show. Um, those always mean just so much to us so go do that and if you want even more of this conversation join us on patreon for as little as a dollar a month you can hang out with us on a little more personal level and we take your opinions into account yes when we do we got this entire season idea yes. from misty yes. one of our most famous patron members oh, who's probably just screaming at all the scientific inaccuracies because yeah, she's that's actually okay. a scientist she's a space scientist that's true star science not <laughs> water science i don't know the difference it's fine me neither um so we love you we hope you're doing well and also we want you to never forget that well-behaved women don't drink warm white wine no they don't and they really make us drink. <laughs>